Welcome to The Lowdown, a podcast of news and ideas from the Columbia Alumni Association. So you may have noticed that we've been digging into our archives a lot. To be fair, there's just a lot of interesting stuff going on at Columbia, and we want to shed some light on some talks that haven't gotten a lot of attention lately. One of those talks was with Columbia physicist Brian Greene. In 2014, he sat down with the writer, award-winning TV correspondent, and Columbia College alum Gideon Yago to talk about World Science U, Columbia's science initiative, and some of his out-of-this-world ideas. We're only playing you some of the highlights from that talk, but you can hear the full conversation by clicking on the link in the show notes. All right, here's Gideon Yago. I am very uh, happy to be here uh, because I think one of the things once you leave Columbia uh, that sometimes you, you don't get a chance to experience are uh, different points of view and different insights um, uh, from what you do in your day-to-day life. And fortunately with us here tonight is Dr. Brian Green uh, to uh, have a discussion about some of the breakthroughs in science and some of the work he does and, and how and why he does it. Um, I wanted to start up our conversation with a little bit of some of the scientific breakthroughs that have been taking place. So on March 22nd... Just to interject quickly from the future, that would be March 22nd, 2013. Okay, carry on. Um, scientists who are working with the BICEP2 satellite in the South Pole uh, announced what was being hailed as one of the biggest breakthroughs in physics in the last 20 years, which was, and stop me where I get this wrong because I'm pretty sure I'm going to, um, uh, a recording of gravitational waves uh, dating back to the origins of the universe. Um, and I was wondering if you might be able to shed some light on why that has been such a significant discovery and what it means now for the scientific community and for those of us at large. Yeah, no, that was a pretty good summary of what happened. Okay. The, uh, the, bicep, uh, yeah, no, the, uh, <laughs> the bicep telescope is down at the South Pole. Mm-hmm. And for three years, it's been staring at a patch of the southern polar sky trying to measure features of what's known as the microwave background radiation, which is heat left over from the Big Bang itself. And a theory that has been on the table since the uh, early 1980s called the inflationary theory of cosmology, which says that the universe underwent a rapid swelling in a tiny fraction of a second, which is what the bang was. And this theory, which we've been trying to verify since the 1980s, says that as space underwent this rapid stretching, little vibrations in the fabric of space itself should be stretched out. And as they stretch out, they become longer ripples in the fabric of space-time. And those longer ripples would leave an imprint on this heat left over from the Big Bang. It would polarize the lights. The way you have polarized sunglasses that only allow light that's vibrating in one direction or another to pass through the lens, which is why the sunglasses work. Similarly, the light that's been affected by these ripples in space would be polarized, and they've been trying to measure that polarization, which would show up as a swirling pattern in the heat. And the claim was that they have now seen that swirling pattern, and if it's true, and that is still a big if, so if these results stand, they will go a long way toward giving confidence that this inflationary theory is correct. And what kind of, what world does it create after, if it is proven true? Where does science go from there? Where does physics go from there? Well, uh, and I need to underscore, 
it really is a big if. Right. So, so we do have to un underscore that repeatedly. So if these results are confirmed, some people will interpret it as the true smoking gun of this inflationary theory of cosmology, which would suggest that we will have pushed our understanding of the origin of the universe way back to a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of a second after the beginning, which would be a thrilling prospect for that to be true. Now, even if the theory is not correct, as others will claim there's going to require yet more analysis before you really believe that these observations prove that particular theory. Putting all of that to the side, if these results are true, it means that we will have been able to open a window onto the earliest moments of the universe. Forget about theory. We are now seeing things that took place at, say, a billionth of a billionth of a billionth of a billionth of a second after the beginning. And that is amazing that we can sit here on planet Earth and look out into space and perhaps, if these ideas are correct, see what happened in that tiniest moment after creation. That's an amazing thing. How long do you think it was after the discovery of general relativity before you reached a tipping point in mass culture where suddenly the new world that that had opened uh, uh, was kind of occupied by the rank and file, where people really truly understood the significance of the discoveries at that time? Uh, it's not clear we've reached that, that <laughs> point yet. Right. So like 50, uh, 60 years in the future? You know, um, but, but what I will say is the case, Einstein as a singular character sure. entered popular culture in a very big way quickly after 1919. So 1919 was the year that observations of distant stars made visible by the solar eclipse of 1919 allowed Einstein's general theory of relativity to undergo its first rigorous test. Because Einstein's theory says that space and time can warp and curve, which would mean that distant starlight would curve as it passes by the sun. Usually we can't see that starlight because the sun overwhelms the light from distant stars. We don't see stars during the day. But when the moon blocks out the sunlight, all of a sudden the distant stars become visible. And you can measure whether or not the light that they emit that grazes by the sun on the way toward Earth gets bent. And that experiment was first carried out in 1919. And indeed, it showed that Einstein's theory was borne out. In fact, it's a famous story that Einstein received a telegram telling him that the observations had confirmed his theory. And someone asked, Dr. Einstein, what would you have said if the observations did not confirm your theory? He said, well, I would have been sorry for the dear Lord because the theory is correct. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, so after that moment, the New York Times picked up sure. this result, you know, this big headline, you know, lights all askew in the heavens, you know, Einstein topples, you know, Newton's theory. A uh, little small print, you know, only 12 people in the world understand Einstein's theory. Sure. But, but amazingly, it even says in smaller print, you know, but, but his publisher was so bold that he put this <laughs> theory into print. I was like, is it really that bold to put the equations of general relativity into print? I mean, what, what really could happen uh, from doing that? But yes, I guess it was a bold move. Um, but Einstein then, you know, was seen, you know, with, with, you know, famous movie stars, you know, Charlie Chaplin, you know, great iconic photographs that spread his image around the world. So very quickly it became part of the culture. 
Well, now we live in a world where people talk about quantum probability, quantum computing, quantum thinking, quantum spirituality. It's almost become uh, sort of a catch-all adjective. Hey, I'll tell you, just I know you have a real question coming sure. after this, but uh, I do, uh, I really do. But, but you know, I, I actually did a little bit of study because since this is like Columbia-centric, I, I was teaching the Frontiers of Science course, and you know, for my quantum lecture, I wanted to show some of the ways in which sure. this word has been taken over by the culture. And there's this wonderful device called the quantum sleeper that it came upon <laughs> okay. where it is this bed. Randomly you just get hit by sleep and wake up. Well, it's, it's sort of like, this. <laughs> well, it's actually different. It's this bed where you actually can close it in on yourself and it says it'll protect you against you know, nuclear war, you know, terrorist <laughs> attack. No, it's a quantum sleeper. Uh, but anyway, so to your real question. Well, no, to, to my real question is I think that, you know, you look at the gap between that discovery and where we are now in kind of the, the use or abuse or misuse of the word. Um, and the role of uh, scientists along the way in terms of helping society in general grasp the concept. Um, and now, with BiStep 2, the reason that I asked that question was, how long do you think it will be before the significance of these discoveries suddenly becomes day in and day out part of our lives? Yeah. And how do we get there? So I don't think it, it necessarily becomes day in, day out part of our lives sure. in that sense. But there obviously is now a very short trajectory from a major breakthrough and it getting out there in a, in a way that's, that's fairly accessible and, and relatively accurate. You know, there was some criticism that's worthy of a separate exploration that the scientists who made this breakthrough that, that we're talking about, they went right out with a press conference to announce the result as opposed to the more traditional, which is a slower route, you write the paper, you send it out, it gets peer reviewed, you know, you have to respond to the criticism of the community, you know, which is the more traditional way of doing it. So they had a press conference and as I think everybody in this room knows, it immediately got picked up and I maybe mean, just see how many people had heard of this breakthrough before we were discussing it here. Right, so it's sort of you know eighty percent of the room. Sure. How many of you online uh, had heard? Let's just do the poll there. Right. Yeah, they got the ball. red light. So uh, clearly everybody. So so um, <laughs> so so that is you know a, a kind of a, a wonderful new feature which can be abused but has the potent impact of allowing people to feel that they're part of the discovery. They don't have to wait six or eight months to hear about it or to wait for, say, a NOVA program you know, to do some big exposition of it. These things get out there quickly, and that's an exciting thing for scientists. Um, I think one of the exciting things for those of us who are not in the sciences is to have our mode of thinking or, or have uh, our view of the universe sort of questioned by those who uh, are specialists and pioneers in this field. Um, we were talking a little bit earlier in the green room about the need to have an interpersonal dynamic in really understanding some of these more theoretical concepts. Uh, I was wondering if you could, uh, I asked you not to answer that question while we were there, but I was hoping that maybe you could, uh, you could answer it now as to why you feel at a certain point, in theory, you need someone to guide you further down the line. Well. And again, just to give a little bit of context, when sure. we were initially talking about that, that question in the green room, it was the question of, you know, with all of the move to digital education, sure. to what extent does the, the faculty member matter, even in the digital space? And my thinking on that is that the faculty member plays a vital role. 
I mean, if you look, for instance, just as one data point, at those scientists who say won the Nobel Prize, a significant fraction of them, I don't remember the exact number, but it's, it's, it's large, a significant fraction had a Nobel Prize winner as their advisor, right? So, so having somebody who has great insight into not just you know, the technical aspects of these ideas, not just you know, the big ideas, but someone who can take you by the hand and lead you through the intricacies of these abstract ideas, I think that's a vital part of the education, a vital part of absorbing the ideas in a deeper way so that you can't just you know, answer the questions on the exam, but you really have an intuition about how they work. And I don't think, I mean, obviously, you can get that intuition in many different ways. But I think the most efficient and effective way of doing that is to have a guide who's really right there with you. You can see that person and feel that there's a trust between the two of you. And that allows you to get through those difficult moments as you're trying to understand quantum mechanics or general relativity or even special relativity. These ideas are hard because sure. they're so unfamiliar. And having a familiar hand that takes you through it, I think, makes the learning process all that much more effective and efficient. When you do your books and your lectures or you look to do uh, uh, albums or polydisciplinary performances, um, where do you start? How do you... What's the initial idea that, you, that you, you seek to connect with? You know, it depends on the project, you know, enormously. But just to be concrete, you know, there's um, this project that we did actually with the World Science Festival, so Tracy here produced a project called Icarus at the Edge of Time, which sure. was a, kind of an unusual melding together of, um, you know, story, science, music, and film. So this is just a 30-second background, is a, a story that I wrote about uh, uh, sort of a reimagining in a futuristic sense of the myth of Icarus. The boy doesn't have wax wings and against his father's advice, fly near the sun. That's original, of course. In this case, the father says, don't take your rocket ship and go to a black hole. And nevertheless, this futuristic Icarus does that. And unlike the original, where, of course, the wax wings melt and the boy dies, in this version, it's Einstein's general relativity that dictates how the story unfolds. The boy goes to a black hole, hangs out there for just a few hours, but the real physics that Einstein taught us is that time slows down near the edge of a black hole. So even though it was just a few hours for him, when he comes back to show his dad what he's done, he quickly learns that it's 10,000 years into the future, and his dad has been dead for, for 10,000 years. So it's a sort of different version of the story, but one that is driven by science. And in that particular case, that was the key thing for me. I wanted to try to create something where um, you, you, you wouldn't feel someone's lecturing to you about general relativity. You wouldn't feel like someone's you know, trying to really teach it to you. You just kind of uh, go on an enjoyable story journey. And by virtue of going on that journey, you just kind of absorb the science. That, that was the point there. And one of the key things, too, was you know, this did start as a book. Um, but then we turned it into the stage performance because music and film are such a great way of going right through to the body. You don't have to sort of go through the head, the thinking, the cognitive part, which is always what we associate with science. I wanted science to kind of penetrate immediately. And having music and film was a, a vital part of making that happen.
how would you take the scientific discoveries that you're working on the forefront of in physics, and actually, are there, are there narratives besides just the mythic that you can apply towards daily life? You can, but let me just go back to that, that, sure. that, that directive that you, that you mentioned there, because you know, when, when, um, when the book version of the story sure. came out, and I, you know, the publisher sent us copies, um, it was actually dedicated to my, my son, and, and, and my father's no longer living, but um, my son was, I guess, five at the time when the book came, and I didn't want to give him this book, this story, for fear that he would be like, "Oh, it's another one of Dad's things." I don't, he always, you know, makes me read his books. You know, I didn't want it to turn into that kind of a dynamic. So I wanted him to kind of come to the book on his own. So I kind of left the book around the house. Many copies I left, you know, subtle, around, very around the house. You know, and, and he did find one copy, and he asked my wife to read it to him, and she did. And at the end, he was crying, crying, right? And, um, you know, some people asked me, well, didn't that make you feel bad that you wrote the story that made your son cry? And he was crying because, you know, the dad is dead sure. at the end of the story. And, and, and yeah, at some level, I, I felt bad, but really, I was thrilled. Uh, and I was thrilled because if a story based on Einstein's general theory of relativity can make a five-year-old cry, I think that's a good thing. Because science becomes more than, again, just the facts and the figures and the solving the equations. It becomes something where you really think about how it affects your life. So for weeks after my wife reading him the story, my son was asking me questions like, well, like if the black hole was smaller, would, would the dad still be alive when the boy comes back? Um, you know, couldn't the boy maybe not have gotten so close to the black hole and then maybe when he came back it would only be 20 years later and the dad is still alive, it's not 10,000. So he was really trying to think about the ideas driven by this emotional reaction to a story that at its core was scientific. Prior to this, we, we talked a little bit about sort of, um, you know, the, the works of, of culture that kind of uh, evoked your interest in, in the possibilities of science. And you talked about a Star Trek episode called The City on the Edge of Time. City on the Edge of Forever. The City on the Edge yes, of Forever, yes, excuse yes. me. Yep. Um, and uh, uh, would you like to, or I can paraphrase the plot? And no, no, would you. Would you like to talk? So uh, essentially, uh, you go to a place... Uh, you know, uh, uh, our friends at the Star Trip and uh, Starship Enterprise go to a place where time is not a closed linear place, where things have the potential to happen over and over and over again. And you describe that as an aha moment for you. Can you tell me why? And can you tell me in what way does that weird little bit of Star Trek have any bearing on our understanding of the universe that we know? Well, you know, I got, you have to remember. So Star Trek was the late '60s. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, as a, as a young kid, so I was, you know, you know, eight, nine, seven, eight, nine, I can't remember exactly which, which season that, but I remember I'd sit and watch those with my dad. And this, this notion, which is now, I think, you know, quite familiar because Hollywood has taken on time in, in, in many plot devices, but the plot there where, you know, these two characters, you know, go back in time and it's the whole notion, if you can go back in time, can you change anything? And if you can change things, you know, that can wreak havoc with the universe. Seeing those ideas play out in the context of a plot which was, you know, you know there's always an attempt, I think, in many of the Star Trek episodes to bring some you know, human emotional context to it. 
they did a really good job. And that wasn't cheese ball, even to an eight-year-old or whatever I was. It felt like a real emotional story as Kirk had to make a decision to not save this woman that he loved. He loved a woman in every episode, but whatever, you know. Um, you know and he had to Can let her die in order that the universe would play itself out in the way that it was meant to. And to see, again, how this scientific idea of time and time travel could have this real potent emotional context was something that had a big impact on me, for sure, especially as a young kid. I wanted to read you one quote, um, and perhaps ask you a question after. Uh, I have a friend, quote unquote, uh, who is an artist uh, who has sometimes taken a view which I don't agree with. He'll hold up a flower and say, you see, I, as an artist, can see how beautiful this thing is. But you, as, an art you, as a scientist, take it apart, and it just becomes this dumb thing. Uh, and I think he's kind of nutty. First of all, the beauty that he sees is available to other people and to me too. But I believe, although I may not quite be as refined hypothetically as he is, that I can appreciate the beauty of the flower. At the same time, I see much more about the flower than he sees. I can imagine the cells in there, the complicated actions, which also have beauty. There's not just the beauty at this dimension at one centimeter, but even on a smaller level. It adds a question uh, of all, it adds all kinds of interesting questions with science knowledge. Uh, adding to the excitement and the mystery and the awe in art. Uh, that was Richard Feynman in 1993. It's not really a question so much as an opportunity to see you do mental battle with the ghost of Richard Feynman. Um, do you feel as though he is on to something that really through the sciences you can truly, only through the sciences, can you truly under, understand and appreciate the aesthetic value in anything? Um, well, first of all, I should say that, that that's a quote that that I've used about 10,000 times. So, so, um, so it is one that, that resonates with me greatly. Um, I think if you push it too far, if you say that the sort of the only way that you can get the, the full enjoyment, the full experience of something is through the science. No, I don't, I don't think that's the case. I think that it gives you a, a different kind of experience, in some ways a richer one, because, again, I do think that scientists can appreciate the beauty of the rose or anything else just as any other human can. And indeed, if it adds to your experience to look deeper and see the cells and understand why the rose is red by virtue of the interactions of the particles or why it has the aroma that it does, again, because of the chemical reactions that are taking place, in some cases, that can add to the experience. So. In those cases, I think the scientist is able to go more deeply, but it's really a matter of, for the scientist, a matter of choice. There are certain circumstances where I think peeling it apart doesn't necessarily add to the experience. I think Walt Whitman provides a nice counterbalance to the Richard Feynman quote, right? The, uh, the, the poem, somebody here no doubt can, can recite it to us. You know, when I heard the learned astronomer, right? Do you know that, you know that poem? I think. Anybody know that poem? No one knows that Mom poem. Mom you were the English major. I thought you guys had to take the core curriculum. You know, and, um, um, the gauntlet is thrown. Yeah, right. Um, so, so, you know, that, that poem, which I, I cannot recite, but, you know, it's, it's about, you know, a student who is in a lecture on astronomy and, you know, describes how he's being told about, you know, all the structures out there and the charts and the numbers and the equations and how he starts to feel kind of sick and kind of leaves the lecture hall, quietly goes out the back and just looks up in silent wonderment at the stars, right? So, so 
you know, I don't think it's the case that it's always a matter of overlaying science to really capture the, few, the, the deep beauty, but it's nice and, and wonderful when you have the option of doing that, and science provides you that option. This podcast was produced by the Columbia Alumni Association and the Columbia College Alumni Association, with editing by Matt Lenz and music by Pottington Bear. Columbia University is a mecca of great ideas in one of the world's greatest cities. And with more than 330,000 Columbia alumni who are leaders in every field imaginable and spread across the world, the Columbia Alumni Association brings you the latest musings, updates, and insights from Columbia University. Learn more about the Columbia Alumni Association at alumni.columbia.edu. And to get even more news and ideas from Columbia, check out thelowdown.alumni.columbia.edu.